Achille, you know, usually I say like, you know, your name and mine, but you were just talking about how you believe mm-hmm. you're the most handsome man in the world. And I just wanted you to maybe elaborate talk about that a little more and then I'll get into our normal intro. Yeah, I, I said arguably the most okay. handsome man in the world. But when I say arguably, what I mean is that people argue about whether or not I'm more handsome than I was yesterday or mm. a minute prior to gazing upon my visage. And so mm. that's what I mean when I say arguably, not that there is someone who is possibly more handsome than me, but mm. that the only person who could be arguably more handsome than me is me five minutes ago. Right. No, mm-hmm. I got you. I got yeah. you, bro. Well, yeah, yeah. with that being said, the handsome mm-hmm. one here is Achilles Nazari. I'm Reggie Bailey, and this is Books of Pop Culture. Um, I'll assume you're doing well. Um, if well, not handsome, being this handsome is actually troublesome, cumbersome, if you will. Uh, you know, I, it's yeah. difficult to shop. Um, right. and and generally, when I walk through most places, people ask for my skincare routine, and now my lock care routine and so mm. um but today is good today is good but it can be cumbersome right right hey man i'm, I'm glad it's not so cumbersome man um mm-hmm. shout out to the fellowship shout out to first and last time viewers first and last time listeners and everyone in between because you could be anywhere in the world right now but you are here with us and we do not take that lightly so thank you we really really appreciate you um there are many places where you can locate books of pop culture such as YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. You know, you name the place, we're probably there. Um, you, and on those places, you can subscribe, you can follow, you can like, you can comment, you can download. As a matter of fact, if you listen to this, watching this, whatever, stop what you're doing right now. Go ahead, leave us a like. It doesn't hurt. And leave us a comment. Talk about whether or not you agree Achilles is the most handsome man in the world, whether that is arguable or not. Um, you thank can you, download, you. you can leave reviews, you can... Share with your friends, your families, your digital and physical communities. And you may have noticed that the first community I shouted out was the Fellowship, and that is Books of Pop Culture's amazing Patreon community, one that Achille and I biasly and objectively believe is the best in bookish communities. By joining the Fellowship, you get access to our Discord, where we discuss a whole lot of books and a little bit of pop culture. Bonus Books Pop Culture episodes where we discuss a little bit of books and a whole lot of pop culture. And you get us one step closer to doing this thing that we love for a living. And while you're joining the fellowship, also support us on Substack. Buy from our bookshop. Go to our website. Just look up everything Books of Pop Culture because I promise it is worth your time and it's a good time. Achilles, we have a good conversation <laughs> ahead of us uh, did you drop something there is everything okay yes yes okay. um <laughs> yes yes but I, i'm i'm okay guys i'm okay okay yeah we got to make sure you're good man so I'm just yeah. drop dead gorgeous is what it is <laughs> yeah that's all that is <laughs> okay right that, that's what we heard okay <laughs> well, today who we are about to speak to his work has appeared in the point magazine boston review harper's magazine the Rumpus, Joyland Magazine, the Brooklyn Rail, you name it, he's probably been there, right? He even received an honorable mention from Glimmer Train Press, right? He's a 2019 Jerome Fellow in Literature. He was a resident in the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council's 2017-2018. His graduate studies were in public health. We typically don't talk about 
that all the time, but I think mm-hmm. that's important for this conversation. Absolutely. Um, his second book is also on the way, which is exciting. Um, by the time you're hearing this, I'm not exactly sure what the date is. I think it might be like February or March, but nonetheless, the people who report more stress will be out in April of 2023. So, you know, those who are initiated know exactly who's coming up. And we will be talking to National Book Award for Fiction finalist Alejandro Varela about his debut novel, The Town of Babylon, after this quick break. Alejandro, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Um, like I was saying before we started, they didn't want us to do this episode, but we are doing it anyway. Um, and, and I'm glad uh, that we are. Um, first off, you know, congrats to you, you know, for all the success, you know, at least in terms of like, you know, critical acclaim, right, that you're receiving with uh, the town of Babylon, um, getting shortlisted for prizes, long listed for prizes, but also uh, early congrats on like a short story collection that people will be reading maybe like a few weeks after this airs. Um, how can, can you talk to us, I guess, about that? Like, I, I'm assuming you were working on both of these at the same time. And, you know, I guess, you know what, that one comes out in 2022, the other 2023. How was that working on both of these? Um, well, uh, first off, Regina Keeley, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad we fought the universe to be together. We made yes. it. Um, I, um, the I wrote the short, the short story collection first. I wrote my first short story, first draft of a short story in 2013. Um, it got published, or 2014, it got published in 20, I don't know, 2015. And then after that, I thought, okay, I have a knack for this. Let me see. Another one got published, another. I mean, there were many rejections in between, but it was working. And so I thought, I've got an agent. She said, put it to, you know, publish a few stories and then come back to me and once we have a few stories already published and then we can take them to, to find a publisher, find an editor. And I mean, I really didn't understand anything. So I was just submitting widely to all the magazines and journals. And I mean, I was so wet behind the ears that whenever I got these form rejection letters and they would be like, thank you, it was a pleasure reading your work. I would email this editor, this agent. I would say, oh, they said it was a pleasure to read my work. <laughs> and I, so that's a good sign, right? So I should keep writing. She said, yes, yes, keep writing. And, um, and then I had enough, you know, sort of published that I thought we could go out. But I, in the meantime, I got accepted into a residency, another one. And I didn't talk to this agent for about a year. And another agent came knocking and I said, sure, I, I'm in. He loved the work. He loved all the stories. He said, Robert, uh, Robert Ginsler, it's Sterling Lord Literistic. And we, I was about to sign the contract and in the fine print, it said, don't sign this if you already have an, a contract with another agent. And I thought, oh, I have another agent. I completely forgot, just completely forgot because we didn't have much of a relationship. And I naively believed that after a year of our relationship, if nothing came of it, the contract sort of lapsed. So I yeah. did stop thinking about it. And then I called a friend of mine who's in sort of a media lawyer. And he said, no, just send her an email, let her know. And I did. And she was very nice. She said, good luck to you. I wish you the best. Thank you for letting me know. That was it. And then Robert tried for about two years, a little less, to get the, the, the collection published. And we could not find an editor. We found everyone had really great feedback. Most of it was 
uh, does he have a novel? Or would he consider putting these stories together to make a novel? And then we had three bites and there was going to be an auction. And all three editors went back to their ed board, you know, all of their colleagues. I mean, when I tell you, I talked to three editors who all told me it was the best thing they read all year. They, they were so excited. They couldn't wait. They loved it. They wanted to work with me. And then they all came back on the day of that they, they sort of called the question and they said, sorry, we couldn't get support from our team. And so then that was round one. And I was sort of crestfallen and I knew we would go back out to the next round of publishers, right? We went with the big ones and then we were now we're going to go a little a tier below or something. And, and in the meantime, there was a big shakeup in the industry. There was a round of like firings and all sorts of things happened. And Robert said, let's go back out again. And at that point, I had added another story, taken one away. I had done some work on them. And the second time I went out, um, again, we got uh, bites and couldn't get full buy-in. But this time, there was a little bit more committal commitment from one guy in particular. His name is Danny Vasquez, who is my editor now. He's at Astro House. He was at FSG back then. And uh, he said, listen, I love it, and I have more support, but now I can't get support from the top dog. Uh what if you wrote a novel? I think you have a novel in you. And I said, you know what? Fine. I'll write the dang novel. What, yeah. How much? He said, take your time, take a year. And I was like, no, no, no. I want now. I want to sell work now. So he said, okay, well, go write and come back to me when you have like six chapters, three or six, something I can't remember. So I had an idea for a short story and that I'd been sitting on for a long time. And it was a bigger story and I've been afraid to. I said, let me just sit down. So I wrote six chapters in three weeks. And then I shared them with my agent. And he said, uh, who, he almost always says, I love it. Let's go. And this time he said, mm, why don't you think about this some more? But at that point, I was like, you know what? It was the summer. We went away. At that point, I had uh, two kids. I had two kids. And so we just, we spent like a few weeks away in the summer. They can't, we did all sorts of things. And I didn't pick, I didn't write again. I, I worked on some more short stories. And then it, in the fall, I thought, okay, we need to accomplish something. So I sat down and for about 10 or 11 weeks, just wrote every single day, nine to five. I got a nice grant from the Jerome Foundation. So it paid the bills. My partner earns good money, so it pays the bills as well. Um, and I just wrote, wrote every day, nine to five. Dropped off the kids at school, wrote from nine to five in this office that I shared with a bunch of other artists and writers. And after 10 weeks, I had first draft. And now we are in January of 2020. So the pandemic is about to hit, but we didn't know. Yeah. And so I said, I'm going to take a few weeks off, edit some short stories. I can't look at this. I haven't looked at one word of the novel that I wrote yet. Okay. Right. And, and then I uh, was just about to dive back in. And then we went into lockdown. So I didn't look at it for six months. In the meantime, Robert went back out with the collection a third time. And Danny this time said, I'm in a new place, Astra House. He had a little bit more say, more power. And he said, I want to buy the collection. Wow. And and they didn't offer very much money. And I guess I had read stuff that made me think, oh, maybe we could get like six figures. You know, I've been working on this. And I'm a bit, I believe people should get paid for the work they do. So I was thinking, I put in this many years. I did some quick math. I wanted a certain amount of money that I thought was fair, not greedy, but fair to compensate me for all these years of writing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. And so they came in with a, with a, what I thought was a low offer. I have since learned it's not a low offer. It's a pretty typical offer. But in the moment, I was surprised. And so then 
Robert said, well, they said they'd give you a two book deal if you have a novel. Did you, you finished it, right? And I said, yeah, but I haven't looked at it in six months and I've been taking care of the kids nonstop. You know, we're living at home, wearing masks, washing bananas, like you name it, we we're doing it all. And so I, my partner said, I'll, he, Robert said, well, I'll, I'll give you till Monday. It was like Wednesday. And I said, till Monday to review, it's, you know, it's 250 pages or 300 pages. There's no way. And he said, come on, let's do this. We'll get a deal. I said, okay, fine. You want to work with Danny, don't you? And I did like Danny a lot. I liked his politics. I liked him as a person. I thought this is a person I could work with, right? And he critiques the system. We can talk honestly about how what capitalism is and isn't and what we're, you know, what kind of cogs we are. And, and so my partner took a few days off work and I didn't sleep for about four days. And I just read the novel three times, edited. And on the last pass, every time I sat down a page, my partner would read it. So the page, you would read it, he would read it. And then by the end, he said, it's good, send it in. Yeah. So then I sent it in and I got a call a week later saying the everyone at Astro House wants to meet you, like in a video call. And we did, and I still didn't know. And then they gave me a, a deal for both books. And they said, but well, we're going with a novel first. And I thought, no, I just finished it. And my work depends on sitting for a long time. Because I can, mm -hmm. I like to see it in diff different ways. But they said, no, 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 it's in good shape. And um, yeah, now here we are. Alejandro, that might be, and I think I'm um, speaking for Reggie too, that might be the most interesting book story that I've mm -hmm. ever heard in, in the years of me doing this show. <laughs> yeah. That was a hell of a story. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm blown away. There's a, you said tons of things that. I'm gonna. I see Reggie has the brooding uh, eyebrows, so oh, I know he already I has mean, built a question in his head. Yeah. Don't let him go. Yeah, said tons of good. Stuff. I mean, amazing story. I'm, I can't wait to re-listen to that. Yeah, yeah. no, nah, me too. And I, I guess the first thing I'm I'm thinking of is just like even from the start of what you were saying, just talking about how you wrote the the collection first, yeah. and you know, reading the Town of Babylon, you know, it made me think of just this this tendency in American letters to call something a novel, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not yeah. saying you didn't write a novel, right? But mm -hmm. I'm also saying it could have been called a short story collection and I wouldn't have felt like a, a certain type of way about that as a reader. Yeah. Um, can, can you can you maybe talk to us about that too? Like, because, and I, and I even say this, I've noticed there are a lot of writers whom when they come out first, they do come out with a novel. Mm -hmm. right but it's like directly after right like you're you're not the first person who i'm seeing this this like do this yeah, yeah, the, the year yeah. after there's a short story collection that magically appears right, right. and i've right. always wondered like i wonder if this is the way it's supposed to go or is this the business of writing right. doing what it does um could you maybe talk to us a little bit about that yeah i i, I believe it's a it's a financial decision they mm -hmm. just look at the bottom lines and the best short story collections don't sell as worse as well as uh, not, I don't want to say mediocre, but it's like an okay novel. You mm -hmm. can still get more sales on an okay novel, all things being equal. Right. Yeah. And that's what I was told. And so the numbers almost don't, don't make it worth it. So that's why they push like, let's, let's go out big, but but I also see every year debut short story collections that do well, that get nominated for things. I don't know mm -hmm. how well they sell, yeah. which is often the bottom line. But look at Jonathan's collection. Look at Morgan Talty's collection. I mean, that's just from this year, right? These are debut collections and uh, and debuts, period, for them. 
And they went out first. So I had that in mind, not them because I didn't know about them when I sold my book, but I had that in mind that I knew that was possible. So of course that just killed my confidence because I thought it's not that collections don't do well. It's that they, my collection isn't good enough. So, yeah. I, so I just assumed that was it. So I just needed to work on my craft. But then I also thought, listen, every time something that I don't get a shot at something, maybe you already know, I, I start thinking, hmm, why am I really not getting this shot? Mm-hmm. And and so then my thought was, there's a lot of mediocre stuff out there that gets money, lots of money, and gets a lot of attention. And if what you're saying is you love my work, you love my work, you're a great, great new voice, they would tell Robert, this is going to do well, I look forward, I'll be cheering from him from the sidelines, all these editors would say. Um, you know, I, I just started to wonder, is it because of the themes I'm dealing with? Is it because of who I am? Is it because people are not ready to have these conversations? Um, you, you just don't know. And so, but there's always the voice that says there's just not good enough. Yeah. And so I, you know, I worried about that a lot, actually. Um, and, but, but, you know, just kept going. And then, you know, you get, you have a short story published in Harper's, which was my big moment sort of as a writer. And I thought I can't suck, right? Like, cause they wouldn't, waste their time with someone that sucked so maybe i'm not the best but i can claim now that i don't suck and so Mm -hmm. i just i kept having those experiences where i would build on that i'd be like okay um but yeah i think up until the national book award nomination i was still having that feeling i was like damn i thought i did an okay job with this book how come i'm not getting any attention i wasn't really getting that much attention you know i didn't get any reviews i got very few small small thoughtful reviews, mm-hmm. but very small, you know, like Morgan, um, Marco Gonzalez at Protein and Benny at uh, Them. But these are tiny publications. There was no New York Times or Boston. You know, lots of things didn't come through. And, and that's okay. But I just didn't expect the National Book Award thing to come. So all of these things were making me think, okay, this isn't the thing. Think long term, you know, don't worry about all the hoopla, yeah. like keep writing. And I have ideas for several books and maybe the fifth book will lead to that review where they talk about all of the, the, the four that came before. And that, that'll be a moment where the work gets discovered. Yeah. So um, I think I, I went off track there, right? Because I didn't stick to the. No, no, mm. this is, this is perfect. This is, this, yeah, uh, this is not I, that kind of show. We, yeah. we chilling, we here. Yeah. But, oh, I wanted to show you, but she's not here anyway. Um, I, to answer your question earlier about reading it as a, you know, it could have been a short story collection. I've heard that before. And I'm, you know, it wasn't intentional. It it was probably because in part, I was a short story writer. So my mind went to, you know, sort of, if not tying a neat bow, because I often get feedback that my stories don't end neatly, they'd love for them to end more neatly. But I was in the mindset that like each chapter, I wanted it to be self-contained. I was thinking of it sort of as like a really good music album, right? Where Mm-hmm. where every song could be a hit and so and every song is tight and that's how i approach a short story collection too and so um but i was worried too because i was the reason i never wanted to write a novel was because i thought how am i going to c- sustain this thread for so long it's definitely scares the hell out of me yeah yeah <laughs> and i'm someone with the ability i'd lack the ability to focus sometimes and so I was thinking, I don't even know if I have, you know, the, the, the sort of the ability to, to sustain a story for that long. And so I took a break before I started writing and I only read novels and I read a, like a month 
where I didn't write a word and I read like 15 novels just as fast as I just and there were three that stood out to me and but I'm going to talk about one right now which is The Bluest Eye Toni Morrison and when I read that I thought oh I see okay you know in a lot of ways whenever I read Toni Morrison I feel like I have permission now to do what I was kind of wanting to do or, or, or attempting to do, not comparing myself to her in any way, but just sort of the freedom to try. Yeah. And that book really did it for me. And I loved that between chapters, we would just jump. And I thought, oh, right, of course, I don't have to hold the hand of the reader between the end of one chapter to the other. They can use their imaginations. They can imagine what those days were like. And you know, it, it's such an like an obvious thing once you say it out loud, because that's how movies and books and TV are, right? They don't always fill in every moment. But when you're writing, you think, oh, my God, is it clear that tomorrow's, you know, that it was Tuesday and now it's Wednesday? You know, you start worrying about all that. But when I was reading The Bluest Eye, I thought, OK, OK, I can do this. And so I, when I was writing the novel, sometimes I would just go to the next chapter and I would just forget what happened before. I was just like, now I want to focus on this person's storyline. And now I want to focus on this person's storyline. And so that's how, and I think that contributed to maybe this feeling of, of this could even have been a short story collection. Yeah. And, and, and I guess like what I'm also getting at too, is like a, a little bit of a larger critique on just uh, the way Americans engage with, with literature, because, you know, we will read anything called a novel, despite what it is, you know, like, like I, I just, you know, and this is a personal thing, because like I said, prior to, uh, you know, coming on air, short stories, despite the fact that I read novels more than I read anything else, short stories are definitely my favorite genre of literature. So mm. I just naturally I want everyone else to love short stories the way I do. But it just that just ain't the way it work over here. I you know, the other thing I thought was like, no, the novel, the short story is going to have its moment because I think it had its moment in the past. Right. Mm. And I think maybe the moment I thought was going to come back because we're a Twitter generation. We're a real generation. We're, an, you know, we're a TikTok generation. We like short, you know, we, we moved to TV because we like episodic. We like short, stand, what do you call them? Those limited series, you know, we don't even yeah. watch eight yeah, seasons yeah. anymore. And so I thought, yep. sure, short stories like almost, but there's something I think almost psychological about the idea of investing in a, a novel. Yes, like yep. it's like you're buying a, or you're getting a, the whole package you're not and so yeah. i think some people that that there's something about that i've been yeah, asking I, people about this for the last few years and and that's the best i've been able to put together one thing i'm thinking about is just the the slowness of like you know those houses to or, or rather the disconnect between readers right because the ones the short stories i've been reading are freaking awesome right the short yeah. story collections and I don't know if they have their finger on the pulse to know that we are totally fine with you giving us short story collections. Readers yeah. read, right? Yeah. And yeah. so um, I think it is definitely something psychological, like them holding on to this idea, right? Because I think, like you said, we have, we, we, we all love those short things now, right? So yeah. why wouldn't we want a book that lets us in, enter and exit quickly Right. Get what we need, but then also has that same thing that we all want, which is like yeah. that yearning to finish. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. So, yeah. And maybe it is. Maybe it is coming on the horizon. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I'll be more than happy when it does. Um, 
you know, and and I'll I'll jump right into this this question we always ask, which is, you know, what is throughout everything you've 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 told us, which has been a lot of fun to just listen to. Um, what is the most important lesson you've learned about the business of writing? What I didn't know I needed to do is advocate for myself as much as I did. I thought, okay, now I'm in the hands of a publisher. And so the publisher is going to take care of absolutely everything. And I have a really supportive publisher and I, I like the team of people that I work with very much. I respect them and we have great relationships, but I'm hustling and I've been hustling for a year and, uh, and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. And I think unless you are a person who gets chosen for one of these, you know, um, really popular book clubs, you know, the Good Morning Americas or the Today Show or you name or any of those, or unless you have a profile or unless, I don't know, Miley Cyrus holds up your book on Instagram, you're going to have to hustle if, if what you want to do is sell a lot of books. Now, that that said, I can speak for I can speak to people who are even in those clubs and they're hustling. So it's not as if, oh, okay, I get chosen by someone and you know important Oprah, and then suddenly I don't have to do a thing again. No, no, you still have to hustle. But but I didn't realize how much I had to do in the cultivating of relationships with booksellers, with bookstagrammers, with podcasters, with other writers. Um, you know, the landscape of my life and my social life in particular and professional life has changed drastically in the last year. I don't talk to my family, my friends, uh, my neighbors as, as much as I used to. And it's because I'm constantly hustling. It, it never ends. And, and I don't, I, I have to stop sometimes and ask myself, what exactly, what's the purpose of all this? What am I trying to accomplish? I'm not trying to be a bestseller or, or a, a millionaire. I, I come from a privileged place. I had a career before this. I have lots of writer people in my life who I see they need this in order to survive. I would like to make a living from my writing and I am doing so right now, but I'm not trying to be a bestseller. I just want to make sure I can do this for the rest of my life. And in order to do that, I think I have to hit certain marks, right? Because then the publisher is like, well, we can't invest in your third and fourth books because your second and first didn't sell so well. And yeah. so, so I just kind of have to sustain this level of interest and I, I think, and possibly a bit more. And so that requires a lot of phone calls, a lot of plane rides, a lot of train trips, a lot of emails. And, um, and you know, it can be a bit exhausting. It can be a bit exhausting. <laughs> so I didn't know that was going to come because I quite naively thought at the very beginning, oh, I I'm going to just write one manuscript a year, send it in and let them, my work speak for me. I'm going to say no to everything. I was going to do like... Um, like Monique did with the Oscars, right? She was like, I'm not going to go do any of the, the glad handing. And I respected that 100%. She didn't want to do yeah. that. She did the work. It was beautiful work. Let it speak for itself. And, but then, um, you know, I have conversations like this, which I really enjoy, actually. And meeting lots of people who are so enthusiastic about books and then my work and, you know, what's not to love about that. So it is great. But when you ask me about what is a surprise, that was a surprise. I didn't know mm -hmm. I was going to have to be so involved in the marketing of the book. Yeah. 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 No, that is, um, that's just one thing that, you know, I'm, I'm learning just as I get more into just the business of books is just like the constant promotion. I mean, 
you know, and, and I think it's just bookish endeavors in general, whether you are the author, the publisher, whatever, there's just, there has to be constant promotion, especially when you look at the other sectors of pop culture and how much coverage and just engagement and everything they get. Like books, books can't just like put themselves out there and just hope that all of the attention the other segments get will eventually flow over. Like there has to be some swaying you know so it, yeah. and it's and it's it's interesting because with books you're asking people like you were saying this goes back to the short thing circling back with a book you're asking someone hey look this might take you nine ten hours to read you know i know you could just watch this new episode of abbott in, in mm-hmm. a half hour with a little commercials right. but you know instead of choosing abbott you know hey choose the town of babylon tonight you know yeah. that that's a that's a that's a tough ask you know yeah. but I, I i'm into it you know yeah right, and then you right. have, and and then you have to compete with like prince harry you know we're like can you stay in your lane yeah yeah like, yeah i'm like <sighs> no i mean all all respect to prince and to harry and megan but honestly it's true like lots of people ran out to buy that book and and i'm yeah. like you got the netflix show can't you just be happy <laughs> word yeah <laughs> for real and you know I, I would wager i'm not gonna you know generalize but i know when i see like i'll use i use like my mom for instance right she's not a huge reader right but she'll feel like she has to like <clears throat> have that book she's not gonna read it she's gonna go get it and she's gonna watch the show right. you know and it, it's almost like a i don't know uh i don't know it's just it just occupies a weird space in people's minds yeah. not just yeah. Prince Harry, but like those types of folks. Like, I yeah. mean, I have the Obama. I have like three copies of the Obama book, and the best, yeah. the best usage of it that I can find is I've used it as a lamp post, um, and um, and I used it and I, for various random things, I, props in my reels and, and yeah. stuff like that. But I've, I mean, I've read half. I would say uh, I've heard he's a good yeah. writer. Yeah, not in that book. To well, yeah. I don't even know. I feel like in that book, because <laughs> I like the other books from Obama, I feel like in that book, he made the wrong choice in what he wanted to cover. But I guess it's one of those like encyclopedia type things where yeah. you, you want to have a record of how he was in the office. But yeah, I didn't okay. want that. Like Generally, I ask people how they are doing genuinely. And I inquire about trap gas. But I think you are, you know, like really killing it right now. And I don't want to slow you down. So... My question will be, can you provide your synopsis or elevator pitch of what the town of Babylon is about and let us know the inspiration behind it and if you have trap gas? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the town of Babylon is a story about a public health professor who lives in the city, an unnamed city, and travels back to the suburbs where he was raised to take care of a sick parent. It's a white working class Irish Italian community, and he is a mestizo, brown, Latinx, half Salvadorian, half Colombian kid. Um, and he goes back, and while he's there, he's going through some marital stuff, and his partner doesn't, his husband doesn't come with him, so he is um, there taking care of his parents. And by chance, it's his twentieth high school reunion. And when he left, he left for good. But in a kind of a moment of desperation, desperation, maybe a bit of a not yet midlife crisis, but just aimless about what comes next he decides to attend and he rekindles relationships with his best friend simone who is in a psychiatric hospital dealing with a sort of an acute episode of schizophrenia 
Um, his first love, Jeremy, who is a married father of two, uh, seemingly living a straight life, but we don't actually delve into that very much. Uh, Paul, a Baptist minister who was Catholic, who may or may not have been involved in a homophobic uh, murder in, Mur yeah. in his youth. And then a few other characters, but also the ghosts of his brother and, uh, and memories of his past, his brother who died young. And uh, this book is was meant to be lots of things, but I'm always have an eye on critiquing the American dream, capitalism, white supremacy, and the ways in which we kind of build um, ladders in society and we stack ourselves on top of one another and for what what for what good. Yeah. So that was sort of where I wanted. That's what that's what the book that's my pitch with well, the inspiration of it came from public health not surprisingly maybe there's a town about uh 75 miles west of new york city and it's called rosetto pennsylvania and in the late 19th century about 1850s i think or 1860s no 1860s 70s uh italian immigrants settled there and they were low on on the ladder and they went to work in the in the slate quarries and their bosses were the Welsh and the English, who not surprisingly treated them poorly because that is the American way. And so, you know, you had it bad and then someone else shows up or sort of the immigration sort of cycle is that way. You treat everyone who arrives next worse than. Um, and they, over time, built their own town and their own community. And they were very sort of insular and it was all Italian and they mostly the same trajectories. They had three and four generations living in each household. By the 1950s, they had the best health in the country. No one could understand it. There were no heart attacks, no heart disease, no crime. Um, everyone lived longer. They, but, and so they were like, what is this? So they started doing research. A, few, a couple of researchers came into town, and what they discovered was that how tight-knit they were. Because initially they thought, oh, they're Italian, so it must be that Mediterranean diet. And then they went and investigated, and then they put they ate lard all the time. They, they, you know, they spoon, spoons of, spoonfuls of lard into all of their dishes. They drank more wine than the average American. They smoked unfiltered cigars. Um, they were more overweight than the average American, but there was no crime, nothing. And so what they realized was that these this community of folks was so united. They felt so safe around each other. Like when you walk into a space and you know that person knows my experience so well, and they're not that much different than me. So I feel safe. I don't have to think twice. And... That's they it came to be known as the sort of Rosetto effect when it came to heart disease, because heart disease was the biggest killer then in the 1950s, as it is today in the United States. It's the biggest killer. And when and it's affected by this idea of cortisol, like if you're, that's your stress hormones. Right. And so we have a certain level. And if you have a very stressful moments in your day, like I'm a little I was a little stressed before this interview. So my cortisol levels probably went like this. But yeah. then they come back down to to where they were before to stasis. But if all every day, all day long, you are feeling moments of stress, and what is the most ubiquitous thing in our lives? It's human interaction, right? So if I'm walking down the street and I can't make eye contact with that person because I'm afraid uh, it's unsafe, or I'm afraid they're judging what I'm wearing, or I'm afraid they're going to call the cops on me, or I'm afraid I'll call the cops, you know, if that is a navigation that you are doing every day, all day long, because you don't know your community well, then that cortisol never comes back down. And so if it stays up, all the things happen. The sugar in your blood doesn't go to where it needs to go. So it accumulates diabetes. Mm. Uh, 
you know, you stop ovulate because that's the stress that's cortisol is meant to help you get out the adrenaline and cortisol are the stress hormones. So if, if, if a lion is chasing you in the savannah, it, every, all your other functions like producing eggs, if you're like ovulating sperm production, tissue repair, um, processing fat and sugar, just everything that we're doing all day long, our bodies are doing stop because everything goes to the heart and to the legs and the lungs. So you can run. Right. But if you're constantly in that fight, flight, fright mode or freeze mode, then everything shuts down. So those moments are supposed to be one and done. But if they're, if your cortisol is always up here, then guess what? That's how we are the most unhealthy, rich country in the world. Cause we have everything, but we're still the most unhealthy. So what they found is in that little town, their cortisol levels were so low that it didn't matter if they got mistreated at work, which they did and, you know, for a while until they came and made their own time. They were so protected. They were like, ah, oh, my door can be unlocked. My grandmother's gonna help me with the kids. They're making the same food I'm making. They're not judging me because they also speak English just as bad as I do, or they speak English the same as I do, or they smell the same way, they cook the same things. That sort of thing brings it all down. So you're not constantly navigating the, am I safe? Am I being judged thing? That's not like New York City, right? You can have little pockets in New York City, but, or in any city, you can have little pockets. And in those pockets, whether it's in church on Sundays or whether it's in the community center or your reading group, you can have those moments in those pockets. But every time you step outside, you know, you hear it when people are triple locking their cars, right? Boop, 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 boop. Why are yep, they doing yep, that? Yeah. You feel unsafe, right? So you may, you may not be actually afraid, but it's become a part of your life to double check. Now add to that, like the person who's afraid that they did that in front of you and it's a white woman and it's a brown man. And then she's like, oh, did I make you think, did I... That constant in your head trying to process this life of inequality is stressful. And people don't realize that that cortisol and, and anyway, I wanted to write that story. And then I thought, I, how do I do that? And then they kept saying, write the novel, write the novel. So then I thought, well, Rosetto is kind of like the town I grew up in Long Island in New York. It was Irish, Italian, Catholic. Rosetto was just Italian, but it was the same thing, but we weren't healthy. You could already see we were the generations after because by the way those researchers when they left in 1960 or whatever they went to 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 learn about the town they they proposed they said they sorry they hypothesized that they would in a generation the health of these people would come down to to u.s levels like the the, the national average because the youngest generation in that household would want to leave they wouldn't yeah. want to stay because they'd yeah. want to live in the city and they'd want a bigger house and they'd want a fancier car and they'd want to go to the nice college. And that's the American dream. And so they, they did. And when they came back 20 years later to check on the town, all the men had the scars from the heart attacks on their chests and the open bypass and the life expectancy started to drop. And it was now down to the average in the United States because what they had that tightness now what I so I, I thought okay I'm gonna write that story and pretend that was the history of the town where I grew up, and now we live in the present day where we're so far gone from that idea. What I didn't want to do, and I wanted to be very careful, was I was never arguing that we should all self isolate in our communities and only stick with people that we know that look like us and have exactly the same experience. No, but I did want to highlight that differences don't have to be barriers, right? We make differences barriers because of the economics of this country. Right. That's why black and brown are associated with poverty in the United States, not because there's something inherently poor about being black or brown. It's because of, you know, histories of institutionalized racism and 
the history of slavery and dispossession of land and blah, blah, blah. And that's trickled down. And so now we equate the things like we treat them as if they're the same thing, uh, skin color and socioeconomic status. And, and they're not. And so I wanted to kind of talk about how it's important to bring down that hierarchy, like an accordion, right? So right now it's stretched out and we need to bring it down. And when we do, so will the cortisol levels. And when that happens, the top 10 and top 20 leading causes of death in the United States will drop because they are all associated with those spikes in cortisol in your body. Alejandro, you are uh, spitting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, you obliterated my first question in such a cool way that mm -hmm. I am happy that that question died. Because uh, <laughs> when, when you were talking, I was thinking about um, you know, how the narrator informs us that the second generation believe that distance and anonymity will provide them with privacy and control of their destinies. And it's, yeah. the, it's the opposite as you, as you dive deeper into the book, which, which that's what we're, you know, headed into, right? Yeah. There's this devolution of those ideas of American mer meritocracy. Um, and like you said, there's this, this, this drop off in, in the health of the character. So, uh, I'm, I'm, that was nice to watch and hear and listen. Possibly my favorite thing about the town of Babylon is how typically when we think of like capitalism and all its ills, I feel like we think of the city, right? Yeah. But you showcase that the suburbs can't be separated from the ills that the city uh, gives us, right? There's still, right. And, and one thing I kept thinking of is the quote unquote rat race, right? These characters in the town of Babylon, as we'll call it, were still in the rat race. They still, I, I, well, I won't get too specific because I don't want to ruin any other of my questions. But I will say, <laughs> in the event I were to talk about Babylon, I were to be thinking of the city prior to this. Yeah. Now I know I need to talk about the suburbs also when I talk about the idea of Babylon. And yeah. I wanted you to talk to us about the importance of making sure when we talk about just Babylon, we talk about the suburbs. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. Um, exactly. I mean, the suburbs as I know them and what little I've read about the history of the suburbs in the United States, we're really like, how do we escape problems, right? How do we, when I think about how public housing was funded in New York City, for example, it was meant as a sort of stepping stone for GIs who were returning and working class people to, to low rents to save so that then they could buy. And then and then the, the suburbs were built, the Levitt towns, and then they, the federal government gave out loans. But guess who they didn't give the loans to? So then the projects, every, all the white families left and all the black and brown families stayed behind. And then they be, then they, we deinvested from those or divested from those communities and from those those neighborhoods. And then we just pointed and said, look, bad, don't live there. But everyone started there. But who got to leave? And so we valued it. So I don't know if in, in, it's not inherently bad for us to leave a dense area and want to build out and have more space. It's not inherently bad. It's bad the way it was done and how it wasn't spread out evenly, so in, equally or equitably. So in my opinion, we when people leave the cities, they're just like, I want to leave that mess and those bad schools and the crime and the this and that, right? Those are problems that we have all contributed to that we all need to contribute to the solutions to. So some of us run away and then the, the rest gets left behind and we're never, it feels kind of like, yeah, you're just running away from, from the difficult stuff. And 
but in the city, there's a lot of, you know, I always argue the city isn't, and I think I say it in the book, I don't, it's not like, oh, because I'm in the city, suddenly I'm open-minded and I'm not yeah. racist and I'm not sex. Mm -hmm. No, what happens is just that we are so constantly in each other's faces because of the subway, because of the bus, because of the density of it, that I just become jaded a little bit. And yes, in the process, I learned to respect and love and, and to have an open mind about things so that someone from the suburbs comes, you know, you can tell who's visiting from out of town when on the subway. You can tell, you can see the usually like the white father gripping the kid and like the center nervously being like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. And you're just like, they are frightened because they've never seen this collection of humans before. They've never seen all this clothing and all this color and all these things. And you can just right Cause in, in the suburbs, you ran away from it. You ran there and then you became this sort of isolated place. Anyway. So I think um, there's, there's more to investigate. There's more to make up for that there needs to be some redress for how the suburbs were formed. I'm sure there is an example of a suburb out there that's done it right. I don't know it though. Yeah, I don't know it. Yeah. So I just wrote about what I knew on Long Island and Long Island. I mean, it's become, it's become more and more Trump country. That's, that's where time. I want to so go it's, next. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's become more conservative. So yeah. So then suddenly guess what happens if you move people with a few more means with help from the government, you know, to buy their homes and so they want to protect those homes and they want to protect those cars like anyone would. That's natural. And then they don't want those other people coming in and they don't want to have to change their ways. And it becomes about keeping that, that sense of safety. And but yeah, yeah, it's not real. Yeah. So what I wanted to where I wanted to go and you, you touched on that. Right. But a little while ago, Reggie and I uh, talked about a particular uh, Cuban writer uh, named Alex Perez. And a piece he wrote. Uh, do you remember the name of that piece, Reggie? Yeah, it's it was in Hobart Pope, the uh, mm. the Iowa Pariah, and, and the yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, the infamous one. Yeah, yeah. So, so throughout our analysis of the piece, I mentioned to Reggie how a sizable amount of the Cuban community voted for Trump, right? And yeah. and that they see themselves as as like white or at least white adjacent in many ways. Though that yeah. sector, right? So mm -hmm. your book explores the nuances of the Latinx communities when it comes to being. Uh, proximate to whiteness and what it means to not be as close as some communities. Andreas yeah. attempts to grapple with his father's Reaganism and alludes to the 40% of the Latinx community that voted for Reagan and the 30% that voted for Trump. What is the allure of conservatism for your characters? And I've got to ask this too, like Andreas pondered when talking to Marie, what is the level of awareness um, of the policy held by conservatives when you have that uh, support? Because like, for instance, I was driving by a member of the Latinx community's home where I live. I'm in Mississippi. And he had a flag that said, don't blame me. I voted for Trump. And so, like, how does that, how does, and it was huge. But that so, like, says it how, all. Yeah, how does that work in right. terms of, um, you know, like, reconciling the policies and or whether or not they're aware of the policies? And then what yeah. is the allure to conservatism for some of those characters? Yeah. Um, so I think that flag sort of, thank you for this question that I think that those, that flag says it all. And it, it almost answers the question because I almost, because, um, I think there's a sense of like, we didn't do it. Yeah. Like I, 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 I'm a guest here. I'm doing it right. I'm being quiet. I'm not wearing loud colors. I'm not yelling. My car isn't playing loud music. My kids, we go to church, we pay our taxes. Some of that is 
I don't I want to this is my generous take. I'm going to be generous. I'm not always mm -hmm. as generous. Some of it is that folks who left their countries and in particular Latin American countries, uh, Caribbean countries, they were escaping some really, you know, intense uh, the effects of imperialism and colonialism that in, were in part brought upon by the very country that they went to. So the United States contributes to that, right? But it's also a lot of Western Europe has contributed to that. And so there is a sense of like, do not rock the boat because my yeah. sister rocked the boat and she was held against her will. My cousin rocked the boat and he was shot. You know, don't sign anything. Don't get involved. Keep your mouth shut. That's sort of like, we don't want to rock the boat. We're guests. And then you have, because of the continued discrimination that happens here, we'll use as an example, like anyone, any black and dark brown or indigenous Latinx folks in the United States face more discrimination than their white counterparts. Because it's about the color. Because when I'm walking down the street or when you're walking down the street, you don't know if that person is Latino or not. You know what color they are at a distance. Okay, well, you may know. But what I'm saying is that like, if you see a white person, you don't know if that person is Latino or not. They yeah, could be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, same, same with black. And, and also same with Asian. Same with indigenous. Like You don't always know exactly what their ethnicity is um, uh, or their country of origin or their... Anyway, so mm -hmm. I, I think there's still this like, desire to just fit in. And I think that is very human. So there's yeah. my generous take. It's very human. I just want to fit in. I just want to put my head down. I don't want any more trouble. And so all these people are now saying that, because you know what we do well. We, we, in the United States, we mistreat people until they're in bad shape. And then we point to them and say, look, they're in bad shape. Let's continue to mistreat them. And so I think that's what was done to a lot of Latinos and particularly to Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and Dominicans who have been here the longest or Dominicans and Puerto Ricans who have been here the longest in some cases. And so they have faced the most discrimination. So now they're dealing with the most poverty and the most unemployment and the most violence. And so then we point to them and we say, um, we're not like them. No, no, no. Mm. We came here. We're good. You know, we're from South and Central America. We're different. And, yeah. you know, you, you just wish someone was standing there pointing being like, wait a generation. You'll be in the same boat because they won't be able to tell the difference between you and the people who came before. And so that was their effort of voting for Reagan. You know, he says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And that's what you do when you're an immigrant. Often because you come here, you just put your head down and you're like, I'm going to I have my chance. This is I have more opportunities here. There's not a gun to my head necessarily like it was back home. I'm not I'm escaping civil war, that sort of thing. And so you just put your head down and you don't get involved in the rest. You pretend you don't see the things that are happening around you. And sometimes you just don't see the things that are happening around you. And so I think vote, a vote for Reagan and a vote for Trump is a, is a way of saying, I'm doing it right. Don't yeah. judge me by the people who are doing it wrong over there, which is a complete and total cowardly lack of solidarity. Right. Because if we all stuck together, we could win this, whatever this is. But we don't. And it breaks us apart. And that's what capitalism does. Right. It, it breaks us apart. It gives some of us more opportunities and we join, you know, we get a few more opportunities. I don't want to lose them. I'm a victim of that too. Like I'm doing all right. I want to keep my place. I want to keep my position. I like my power, but who am I going to sell out in order to do that? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, we just, it's when I see Latinos first, second, even people who just got here, just immediately turn around and close the door behind them. And I think, God, we're never going to get out of this, you know? But I, but I, but I have, 
I have hope because there are also a lot of immigrants who come here with good analysis and they understand they were political back home. They're political here. They're good. You know, we are good people. All humans have the potential to be good. Um, but that, yeah, the way we get turned against each other is, is, is our demise. Yeah. And what I mean, better way I'm... to do that than skin color and that to get back to the hierarchy, what easier way to do that than skin color, because you can yeah. see that immediately. Right. Yeah. If, yeah. we, if we had to do it by eye color, it'd be a lot harder because you got to get closer to look. If we had to do uh, it, by, yeah. you know, and so skin color is just, it's just the, the easiest way. It's already, it's, there are already systems in place. So we just take advantage of it. And so. I saying, yeah. Racism yeah, so is Latin classism's ugly cousin. Right. So Latinos are just as bad or Latinx folks are just as bad as anyone else. Yeah. Um, and it, because we include everyone, but we pretend we don't. Mm. Yeah. Bars. Yeah. Bars. Nah, and, and, <laughs> wow. Um, so what this made me think of when, when you were just saying everything, one of the scenes that is just going to live in my mind, Ren Free, and I know I'm going to quote this from your book a lot, is when Andres is having a conversation with Simone and he says he's basically, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially says, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how as people age, they get more conservative, right? And, and, and I wanted you to talk to us about that because that was going through my mind the entire time just now when you were talking. Like, I wonder how this intersects with Andres's idea of aging, that aging in the U.S. kind of beats you into conservatism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about this a lot. It's my worst. It's my worst fear that I will one day find myself being conservative and I'm sure if I compared myself to 17-year-old me, I probably I probably am in ways I don't even realize. And I think some of it is, most of it is a, is a fear because some of it is quite practical. Actually, when you're older, you worry more about your safety, like your physical constitution, right? Like how you walk down the stairs, how you run, how you fall. Like all those things are not, you weren't thinking about those things when you were 12 or eight or, or even 25. And so that kind of safety then suddenly makes you want to control your environment a bit more. That idea of like, how do I protect myself? Well, you know, I don't want little kids like scooting on the sidewalk because they're going to hurt me and I could fall. And I don't want super loud music because I need to. You know, and then, but then expand that. And suddenly I'm older and the older I get, in, if, if the American dream is true, I have more property. I have more things. I've, I've accumulated more stuff. And now I want to protect that stuff. So anything that might affect my stuff. But guess what? That very idea of always wanting to protect what you have and not change has some conservative values to it, right? The, it's, the, it's about conservation of the status quo in a lot of ways. I, that's why I've always said to me, being conservative is almost synonymous with being anti-science and anti-growth. Because and technology, I'm even amazed they embrace, like conservatives embrace technology because these are progress. These are tools. Like this is how we advance as a, as a people and as a society. But I guess if it's if it's tied to the bottom line, right? If it'll fill your coffers, then suddenly you can ignore that part of it. But the very idea of trying to be conservative and for things not to change and to stay in, like oh, I want to make America great again. When was America great? Give me a break. But mm -hmm. you know, but what they're pointing to is like the 1950s and 60s. This idea of like what they think was great for them and really what was great for white Americans and not even all white Americans. But the funny part is that that's when we were most socialist. That's when we had the highest, you know, uh, you know, um, income taxes. 
1942, FDR, I feel like I'm lecturing right now. So just tell me if I'm, if it's too much, but in 1942, FDR went to Congress and said, I wanted a 100% income tax on all wealth over $25,000, which at the time was like three hundred or $400,000 or something like that. Imagine that everything you make above this amount, 100% goes back and you, and you would still be the wealthiest people in the country. 100%. And the Republicans, the Republicans came back and said, no, 92%. Mm. The Republicans. <laughs> and so he said no. And so he went on like, he went around the country and he supported labor strikes and he used his bully pulpit and he used the labor movement. And he got the Republicans to finally balk, I think, to 94, 92%. I don't remember. And that's how it was. That's how we built the country. We had so much money from income taxes. Then they raised it. It was like three hundred thousand dollars instead, or instead of twenty five thousand. So, you know, they 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 make concessions. But can you imagine today? Right now, I think that the wealth, the highest income tax is like thirty six percent. I was going to so say from, right around thirty. Yeah. Right. So from from ninety two to thirty six, there is your problem in this country. There is <laughs> well, uh, you know, sort of inequality and poverty and. Bad, bad school, you know, all of that stuff is that money that we don't have to fund the social safety net. And so it, I find it really funny when this Make America Great Again, every every one of those years or time periods that they're thinking of, we taxed so much more. And it went slowly changing until like Nixon. Nixon, even, even under Nixon, I think it was like 72% or 67%, double yeah. what it is now. And then, yeah. you know, Clinton brought it down to like 30 something percent. So okay. that is one part of it. I think this idea that we need to at all costs protect without even understanding our history is just, it's mm -hmm. so comical, right? And, and I think another part of it is people maybe who would fall in my category. I've considered myself a pretty progressive person. I try to be. And I think some of us with age see that things don't get better. And instead of maybe under maybe analyzing that we were asking for the wrong things or we weren't asking for enough or we weren't looking at the bigger picture we just say um we just sort of move the goalpost a little and we say actually actually what we should do is more cops here because that problem isn't fixable we tried that i'm like but we never really tried it did we we never really said yes to reparations and land back because no one ever really wants to talk about the solution. They want all these intermediate baby steps. And when those baby steps don't work, then they say, see, we, it, it doesn't work. So we got to be more conservative, you know? And so then they go to conservative route instead of admitting I was wrong all those years. And my entire lifetime of the political opinions didn't add up to the right solution. Instead of saying that, because that's hard, that's a hard pill to swallow, right? You just say, you just take the, the conservative approach. So I think that's my fear and I'm keeping an eye on it. And I tell my friends, my partner, everyone, I'm like, let's keep checking in on each other. Don't become yeah. conservative. It's, it's, it's yeah. going to happen, but don't do it. Listen, it's funny. Cause I had a conversation with my parents um, about like uh, how like race manifests itself in the black community. And he was like, uh, Oh, that's easy. You just become more racist, the more money you have. Right. And so it's kind of, it kind of works in tandem with that idea. Right. Because it's the the idea is that you know as you age you move up in salary right and so you want to like you said you have more things right to protect and so you want to conserve it um but it's just funny because we literally had that conversation um yeah. okay so steer queer 
um, reminds me a lot of Brian Broom's Punch Me Up to the Gods um, that shattered the idea that uh, gay gathering spots are always about positivity for me, right? Um, in his book, there was a place, and I, I forget the name, but it was uh, it was where there was a lot of what uh, I think people would call like hypertoxic masculinity. Um, and it reminded me a lot of like how steer queer situated itself. Um, mm. when, when Andreas references some of the predatory practices that he witnessed and experienced, it made uh, the second time I've read something like that. I think about the type of protection Rosario wanted to provide for Andreas uh, mm. once she found out he was a young queer man. However, I don't think she would have been able to foresee anything like what that needs to look like. What might you suggest to her if you knew her in real life regarding this instance? That's a, that's a really good question. I, I believe places like this, I made up steer queer, but it was based on a real, a real place. And these places exist. Right. And so, you know, as a, as a, any people of any kind, any culture, subculture, we will find a way. And especially if there's like a kind of a, an almost need, like a, a basic human function, which is in some cases, camaraderie just friendship but then also just sex right like everybody mm -hmm. most everybody most everybody sex is just a part of, of, of who we are and if we're talking about young you know young people adolescents it's also just on your mind right and so um so people will find a way i think as a parent my job i do think about this is to steer no pun intended but to steer my children into those places of community that don't that don't have negative effects or which is to say more positive than negative yeah. for me the character in this book i was thinking that experience for a 17 year old you know to go to a place that's primarily about hooking up and to be that drunk or high in order to do so that breeds shame i think that comes with a great deal of shame it doesn't necessarily create the bonds or a community that I think is the, the alternative. So if I were Rosario's gay friend and I was, and she was just like, I think my son might be gay. I'd be like, okay, we need to find him a group community, community that he doesn't have to be ashamed of, which is to say that it can happen sober in daylight, you know, at the time, maybe not out in everyone's face, but like there were spaces and that would have required you know, I, I mean, I don't know if, if, if I were, so that was taking place in the early night in the mid nineties, late nineties. I don't know what was available for youth at that time, yeah. but I, that's what that as, as a gay person in Rosario's life, I, that would have found a way. That's what, that's what I would have steered. I would have said, okay, there are experiences and people who can be mentors and who can provide some sort of enlightenment uh without it just being drunken and and sex and i'm not i'm not sex shaming i'm not saying that sex isn't you know fun and good and all that but for a 17 year old who's trying to figure themselves out i don't think that's necessarily the best place to start yeah and when you say uh when you mention like you know being drunk and high i think about like the things that most teenagers in general do drunk and high, right? Because yeah. of lack of community uh, regarding whatever it is they want to explore. Um, yeah. That's just where my mind was kind of floating. So I get, I get where you were headed with that.
Okay, so I'm going to do this, Alejandro. I did this last time. Achilles said it was fly, so I'm going to try it again. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So do you want to talk about corrections or do you want to talk about indulgence? Corrections or indulgence? Mm-hmm. And These I'm are the categories. Yep, yep. And I'm being vague on purpose because I don't want to I like, like that, ask that's, the question. That's dope. Let's yeah. go corrections. Okay, cool. So pretty much in 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 the town of Babylon, you get, you know, uh this this commentary on Andres where he's annoying, right? And nerdy. Yeah. And you know, one thing that that led to people saying that is his correcting of people, right? So uh whether that is, you know, in the moment, like to the person or even mentally, right? So I think of the the sick joke, I'll say, right? Um, I think of even uh, what Paul just saying Spanish all willy-nilly instead of being specific. And even um, even his dad, right? Um, shout out Alvaro, right? Even Alvaro with how he, um, he mentioned Serena versus how he might mention the Russian or, you know, someone else, right? Can yeah. you talk to us about the role you wanted corrections to play in the town of Babylon, whether you decide to correct or whether you decide to withhold the correction. Good question. I said I like this question a lot. I um I'm very self-conscious about, and I would say my the biggest critiques I get about the book are that it's a lot of lecturing, right? And I it's not that many, but when I do hear critiques, it's like that. And I I knew that going in. It's 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 how I write. And I think part of it is because I feel a sense of urgency about the things I'm talking about. And, but I like telling stories and I like entertaining people. And so I'm trying to find the best way to do that. And I think I'll get better at it with, as my career moves on, because I don't, I'm not yet interested in writing nonfiction. That's not how I want to talk about these things. I want people to see how they happen in our everyday lives. And so, yeah, I was worried about, overly correcting but I don't I'm not that person in real life in real life I will sit on the things I want to say because I want people to feel good and I want to be careful and I you know I don't have that for lack of a better word like that kind of white man's confidence where they can just call it in the moment and they're not thinking so hard about people's feelings I know hashtag not all white men but but you know lots of and so I (laughs) so I I have to often think a hundred times about how I want to say things. And I don't want to lose people. Also, I have been, although I have never been a community organizer, I have been in a lot of activist spaces in my life. The work I've done has been in places that are social justice oriented or where it's the focus of the work. And I see, I have worked with organizers who know how to read a room. And I have worked with organizers who don't, who are very righteous and they do not bend or break. They will correct you in the moment. And I think read the room. Read the room is so important. It goes a long way. Unless you are an amazing speaker with so much power who can like sway a room, read the room. And if you got to give a little and take a little, and if you got to swallow some of your pride in order to get people to come on board, I think sometimes that's okay. So that's how I live my life. But on the page, I feel like I can just cut loose. And so get busy. (laughs) Say it all. Now, how do I say it without turning the reader off? So I make the character a little bit unlikable, a little bit too much. 
but he redeems himself. He's self-aware. And I do a lot of it in his head because that way people can sort of process themselves. I'm trying to hold up a mirror so that people can see this was the road of, that Andres took, right? He doesn't think he's perfect because he'll go off on one of his diatribes and at the very end, he'll be like, I could be wrong. I'm often wrong. Sometimes I'm wrong. I don't think he's wrong. I just want people to see that he's not perfect and that he's learning as he goes. It's important that he acknowledge like his issues, his isms and the ways he buys in, into all this stuff. So the corrections in these cases and the struggle, the torture that he does to himself is sort of my way of, of presenting both. It's like, I tricked you into making the correction because it doesn't always come out of his mouth. It's in his head. But if, if he processes it, then you still see it. It doesn't matter. You saw what he might've said out loud if he had the guts or if he didn't care about who his audience was and he just wanted to get it out of his system. But yeah, like when he's in the hospital with Simone, like he doesn't, he doesn't want to correct her. He doesn't want to hurt her feelings. Also, he doesn't know her anymore. And so he doesn't feel comfortable doing that. And also she's going through a very intense psychiatric moment. And so he doesn't know how she's going to take what he says. And then he also goes through the whole process of like, all right, this is a black woman dealing with mental health issues in this moment. Do we really need to call her out because she made a joke that may or may not offend, you know, a Pakistani Sikh Sikh person who also doesn't hire black people in his store, you know, so there's all these sort of conflicts. And in that way, I'm very influenced by the work of people like, I'm just going to use one example right now, like Spike Lee. I remember when the first time I saw him do the right thing, you know, when he breaks the wall and he has all those characters call everyone out, every racial group for everything they'd ever done wrong. I mean, it's hard to hear, but it's so beautiful and perfect and so New York. And, and I thought, how do we have these moments of honesty in, in writing so that it's, it's storytelling, but then you have these like direct things, right? Because I think it takes all kinds of communication to get these points out. I could have massaged it all for 300 pages and hopefully bled you to water so you could have figured it out. But sometimes I think you just got to tell people how it is. And so that's what I try to intersperse throughout my work. And I have to be careful not to do it too much because I, I could lose the reader. But I'm finding that a lot of people wanted that. That's what I'm getting as feedback. And, and, and the thing is, right, like, that is where culture is going anyway, if, if you ask me. So, like, there, there are, and, and, and I don't want to say culture is going like it's new. One thing that, I'm, that I believe and that I know is norms just change as we evolve. As time goes on, norms change. The jokes that were okay to say in 1860 weren't okay to say in 1900. Just like those jokes may not be okay in 1950, those jokes might not be okay in 2000. Things always change, right? right. Um, but at the same token, when I see Andres and I see him being like that, that's not unlike anyone who who I know. I definitely know several people like Andres, and like even I even implicate myself in this. There are plenty of times where, like, I, I'm like you. I read the room. I kind of get a feel of how people move. And I go from there, right? Yeah. At the same token, because I read books, because I've engaged with so many different perspectives that I didn't engage with prior to reading books, there's always something going through my head when a joke is made. I might say to myself, is that, that might not be cool <laughs> for real, but, yeah. you know, yeah. it, 
yeah, it's 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 a it's an interesting dance, I'll say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like you said, you know your audience. Like in this case, Andres can call out Alvaro. He can call out his dad because they have a different relationship. But also, he says like. I've done it before and it led to tension. So maybe this time I'm going to let it slide and I'll let my quiet do the talking for me. And the father gets it up to a point. But yeah, but it's funny that things always change. This is a very interesting argument because it's true. And I I see the culture sort of rapidly changing and to use humor, you know, like stand up comedians and how they're getting themselves in trouble and saying things. And and then often the reaction is, why do you want, you know, why are you going to take down the Christopher Columbus statue now? Like no one's ever cared. And then you think, no, in, in 1492, someone cared. In 1913, someone cared. In 1865, someone cared. You know, every time we point to the past, it was just maybe a smaller percentage of the population and or a, or a portion or a large portion of the population that didn't have voice or power. But they didn't like it back then either. You just didn't know about it. There has always been someone who didn't like that joke. But now, in this moment, we have so many more avenues and a bit more power, different groups we have, you know? So we feel more comfortable, more confident, or we're just say it. And, um, and so while I am sometimes to my detriment, because I don't get enough stuff done, and, and maybe I won't in my lifetime because I read the room too much and I get in my head and I don't want to rock the boat and blah, blah, blah. But sometimes I sit back and watch these, you know, sort of Twitter wars and things that happen on social media or younger people usually. And I'm like, yeah, good for you. I'm glad you're saying it because I I don't, I'm always thinking about how do I write a whole book about it? (laughs) And they just, in in, in 40 characters, they're like, no, you're wrong. And this is why. And I'm like, more power to you. And it's not always easy to read. And and I don't, I'm not arguing that Twitter and social media is the best place to have these complicated conversations. But every so often, you know, they hit it right on the head and you know, they won case closed. Yeah. And I, yeah. I admire that. The first question I guess I'll ask is what were the other two books aside from the bluest eye? Uh, you said there were three books. So yeah. what were the other two uh, for, yep. for our listeners? One was in, in the time of butterflies by Julia Alvarez. Okay. And, and the third was the dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. I've, I've heard that this yeah. is a good book. And they all, they all informed the book, either structure, voice, politics, uh, narrator, like they all gave that was like, okay, that's what I want to do. How do I put this all together? And I think in part that speaks to, I picked three great books, by the way, I think they're, they're all, they're both, they're all three masterpieces in a, in a, but also it speaks to my ignorance a little, like I was not a very well-read person. I was a TV and movie kid. Uh, I don't have the best attention span. And when I got to college, it was a rude awakening because I had to keep up and there's so much reading. And then by graduate school, I was better at it. And then when I realized I may want to write, you know, I I don't show up anywhere unless I'm prepared. I think that's part of why I get really nervous places because sometimes I think I'm going to be asked to say answer something that I can't answer. And I don't like that imposter feeling, you know? And I always yeah. feel like, the room is trying to get me anyway, right? Like I think that is some psychological stuff that we could trace back to like brown kid, white neighborhood or queer kid, straight neighborhood, you name it, something. So I'm always kind of on the defensive, like I think someone is trying to, is going to trip me up. Someone in that room is going to be nasty and just call me out and say, that's not actually how it goes. And so then I don't like to show up someplace unless I know I can answer every single question and know exactly what I'm doing. And suddenly books or whatever, there are a million of them. I was like, how can I show up? I didn't get an MFA. 
how am I going to show up into these rooms with other writers who this is all they do is study writing and read and they read they've been reading all their lives and they love it and for me it's homework I read all the time but it is homework for me I do it to keep up I do it because people ask me to write blurbs I do it because I want to educate myself on what came before so I read a lot a lot a lot but it it's not it's not easy so that was part of, that was the part of the reason you know I, I was reading before I sat down so intensely I wanted to get in that yeah. mindset of the novel and uh and those books yeah they surprised me but to someone else I would have been like but that's just you know simple form a and style b didn't you know about that no i didn't yeah <laughs> no yeah. i didn't yeah so I, we, we talked a little bit about this earlier the devolution of the immigrant right and i wanted to uh talk about it from a health perspective with a short inquiry do you think henry survives if they actually did uh move back to el salvador yeah that's i guess like just a personal mm. selfish uh inquiry there but i'm interested. yeah yeah, he survives. He yeah. survives. And, um, but, you know, if I want to talk about the history of El Salvador in particular, right, you have this Spanish colony that in a way becomes part of the, uh, the American empire's sphere of influence. And so, so much control over who gets elected and how they get elected and what companies carve up the country and what businesses are there. And that affects everything, politicians, right? So you have a U.S. company trying to, or the U.S. government trying to keep a particular group of corporations there who then, you know, fund one particular type of candidate and maybe it's more conservative, it's always more conservative. And so then that affects policy. So then everyone comes here, they came here in the 70s and 80s and then they formed in the 90s and they formed gangs in LA and then they get deported back to El Salvador and they bring back this concept of gangs to El Salvador. And so when I say to you, yes, Henry would have survived there. Yes, but then always with this asterisk that the U.S. influence, you know, sort of ping-ponged here, there, and yeah. now back, back to El Salvador. And that happens in a lot of countries, right? And when you go back there, you see the groups of people who were sort of sent back, but now with this kind of American or U.S. like U.S.-infused anger and, and lack of opportunity and, and hurt, yeah. But I do believe that, that Henry goes back and he lives in community and he has suddenly dozens of aunts and uncles and cousins. And so maybe he doesn't have the best life, but it's a different life. Yeah. And he's alive. Yeah. Word, word. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I was just wondering that I have a, um, I had a student when I was still teaching. Uh, shout out to Flores, uh, my little homie, but um, she's from El Salvador uh, and queer. Um, uh, and so, uh, she always talked about it with like fond memories. Right. Um, yeah. So shout out to my, to my little homie. Uh, but yeah, that, those are my two selfish inquiries. <laughs> no, no, yeah. those are great. And I, I, I was a little worried because there's a part in the book where I talk about how so many immigrants come here thinking life is going to be so great. Um, and that sort of is like, if only they knew and they could have stayed and they could but out respect to all the people who don't have a choice. It's not like yeah. they're like, you know what? Life looks kind of better there. No, no, no. They're actually escaping the worst possible. They're just trying to survive. And the United States is, is, is close enough. And the United, by the way, the United States is, is, an, is an ad. It's a nonstop 275-year ad campaign. And so how are you going to, like, literally in Mexico, there are ads for corporations there 
asking people to get on and work for McDonald's and the farms from the, where the cattle come from for the McDonald's burger, and they ship them over there. So we are constantly promoting how wonderful we are around the world. And so why wouldn't you want to come here? If you're suffering here and you can't get a job, and even though you love it here and you love your family, but over there, I could take care of all the people here who are suffering, then of course, stop advertising. If you don't want people here, stop advertising and stop getting into <laughs> people's business. No, and and you know what's interesting about that, that makes me even think of like other like countries and, and cities trying to do that too. I saw uh like a reel yesterday, um, and, and I, I, I honestly just don't remember the person's name who made it because I would want to credit them. I'm I'm not trying to be one of those guys, but um he was talking about how Dubai, right? Like like people have been talking about Beyonce getting twenty four million to perform over there. And he was mm. saying that Dubai underpaid her for the publicity that she was able to bring them, you know, and the way he broke it down was really cool, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and it just makes me think of even when we uh when we had Blitz Bazawule on how he talked about soft power and how the United States is always just just advertising, you know, sometimes you know hardcore and sometimes deceptive, um, yeah. you know, through things like that. So even Beyonce going over there could be looked at as not only advertisement for Dubai. But soft yeah. power mm-hmm. for the U.S. So mm-hmm. it's it's crazy the political games that are always being played, even when we think it's just good old plain fun. To my parents, Maria, Ernesto, and Miriam for the running start. To Matthias, yep, for the, for, for the safe landing. To everyone who does more than they should with less than they deserve. To those who have never been welcome, and for all the people who know how to share the damn sidewalk. Can you speak to us about the dedication that you placed in front of uh, the town of Babylon and just how you came, how you landed on this? Yeah. Uh, well, for sure, I I never feel comfortable in a space unless I acknowledge how I got there. And uh, and so my parents, my 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 two sort of uh, my mom and my dad, but then my aunt Miriam, who's like a second mother to me. They are the people who, you know, who's, who had to survive and, and did so with a lot of grace when they could. Uh, and I'm here because of them. And I met someone in college. So I've been with I've been with my partner for 22 years. And that person has been just uh, someone who every, you don't get always that lucky where you line up with the right person. But someone who didn't have the experience that I had and, and kind of is just there and supports me in a lot of ways. Um, and when I was thinking of who I was writing for, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of people and, and they're in the book too, right? The, the, some of the characters, just people who are always fighting and how we glorify that struggle and we shouldn't. And, but I want to acknowledge that they did it and they didn't, they shouldn't have had to. And they did it with less than they, de- you know, they deserve. They should have had more. And I don't, I don't, I really don't like the American dream narrative because it glorifies that degree of suffering and survival that is not necessary because it's one lifetime. That's it. And it doesn't have to be that one generation suffers so the next one can go jet skiing. No, no, no. No one has to suffer. And if we get that out of our heads, I think we'll be better off. Um, and then also. I just I hate people who don't know how to share the sidewalk. It really drives me 
bonkers. Grinds my, grinds my gears. <laughs> and I just, I'm like, don't you see me? Why does it have to be a game of chicken every time I'm walking down the street in New York City? I'm over all the way to the right. That's the only thing we're taught to do. Now you get all it. You're walking with four. <laughs> you're walking with four friends, okay? You're walking with four friends, and none of you are gonna break. It's like they're refilming the intro to Melrose Place. You know, they're like walking down the street. They're also happy, and I'm one little human. Sometimes I just want to yell, I can't fly. If I could fly, I would over you. <laughs> and so I just do this thing now. And you'll, if you spot me in, 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 in Brooklyn, where I pretend to be on my phone when they get close. I'm like, they're not going to move. We're going to hit shoulders. And I'm all over. So I just look at my phone and don't look up. And I just am like, it's not going to happen. And like clockwork, they move. But mm. if I am making eye contact with them, I think the expectation is that I should move. But I'm like, no, I have taught my, my kids know this. When I see people coming down the sidewalk, because kids are messy. Even the best kids, they're messy. And that's yeah. fine. We got to train them. So they're coming down the street, other people. And I'd say to my kids, okay, kids, single file. So that like, they can come to the other people. Now I don't yell it for my kids. I yell it for the other humans. I say, yeah. hey, kids, single file. Remember, we share the sidewalk. It's 50-50. Not... <laughs> I'm getting yes. a little unhinged sometimes. But, you know, that's – but. <laughs> But I read into it and I, I don't know, I shouldn't read into it because um, <laughs> I have a lot of people in my life who are really decent, good people. And sometimes I'm walking places with them and I'm like, oh no, they're doing it. I'm friends with the person <laughs> who does this. And so, but I get in my head sometimes and I'm like, oh God, is this, is this racism? Is this classism? Like what exactly is motivating this? Sidewalkism. <laughs> yeah. I could see sidewalkism. Yeah, yeah. So when I wrote that, it was my way of being funny. It was meant to be a bit of levity after saying all those heavy things, you know, but also making a bigger point. I like that from that. And I knew, I knew there were going to be lots of people who read that last line and, and not along. I knew it because I know there are lots of us who feel that way. And it doesn't mean just not sharing the sidewalk. It feels like it stands in for something bigger. Wow, Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Favorite thing you researched that ended up, that you ended up including in the town of Babylon? Uh, the way life expectancy sort of drops for each immigrant group yeah. after every generation. Everyone hides that, you know, but like the Irish Americans live longer. I mean, Irish people in Ireland live longer than Irish Americans in the United States. You know, you left there for a better life, but guess what? And so I'm not saying go back. I'm just saying that, like, you have to acknowledge that all the things this country promises can't make up for what it takes away. Hmm. It can't. Yeah. Um, and the other kind of smaller thing is just that um, that research around SUVs and how for a lot of people, yeah. um, it's not for everyone, but I think there is a sense that, like, we buy SUVs sometimes because it makes us feel safer. We're not SUVs were originally supposed to be off-roading vehicles, right? Like rough terrain. Remember mm -hmm. those early commercials, right? But now they're just like to go to the supermarket on paved roads. Yeah. And so and you can get as many seats from a smaller station wagon or from, you know, uh, a different type of car, minivan even. But these large SUVs, I think they contribute to that sense of we're isolated. We're all little armies because we don't have community down the block or in our whole neighborhood each family suddenly becomes its own little army. And that army, how do you protect it? You put it in the meanest, biggest car possible. Again, not everyone, but I think that, that that's what that research found. And, and I liked that because to me, when I'm in the suburbs, I'm like, wow, 
it's like a car show. And it didn't used yeah. to be that way. You will find in Mississippi that we all think we are little armies. So you will see lots of SUVs. Well, well, and then, well, but then it also becomes a matter, I think, for of safety for some cars. Because they're like, do you want to be the little tiny Prius on this highway mm-hmm. of SUVs? With all you're the, get... yep. No, then you're like, yeah. I got to keep up too. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. And um, one of your favorite books you've read in the last calendar year? Favorite books I read in the last calendar year? I read several of Annie Arnaud's books. I'd never heard of her until she won the Pulitzer this year, or the Nobel Prize this year, excuse me. Yeah. And they're all very short. Sorry, I'm, and I'm, you know, again, you know, it's a little embarrassing for me to be like, I'm a writer. And I had not heard of Annie Arnaud until just before the Pul- the Nobel was announced. And they're all like 90 page books and I read three or four of them and I really, I, I dig her style. That's the kind of honesty that in, you know, she doesn't care if it's fiction, auto fiction, nonfiction essay it's sold. They're sold as novels, but they read like, like memoir. And, and I love it. They're, they've been really great. And the other thing I read recently that I liked a lot was um, to the lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. I had never read a Virginia Woolf book before. And I was, I was very impressed by that. And um, I liked Brown Neon by Raquel Gutierrez. Those are essays. That's really good. And, oh, uh, earlier, a year ago, I read Crick Crack by Edwidge Danticat. Uh, yeah. Yes. And that that collection, because I was going to start uh, finalizing the collection. So I read Disha. I reread Secret Lives of Church Ladies. I read Crick Crack. I read um, First Person Singular by Murakami. After Parties by Vyasna So. And Blood Milk Heat by Mon by Moniz, but um, Crick Crack and Secret Lives of Secret Lives of Church Ladies. I mean, yeah. just, they're just beautiful, beautiful work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. A- absolutely. The book you want Achille and I to read, of course, you want us to read yours, but mm-hmm. maybe the book that isn't yours that you want Achille and I to read if we haven't read it yet. I would say a book that has meant a lot to me that I read a few years ago. It's kind of a it was very influential. Uh, it's called An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. That's the second time we've heard that before. Yeah. yeah. It, um, it's a primer for the history of, you know, of like the United States and the indigenous people of this land. And I was reading it the entire time, like just, it's so beautifully written to, to take all of that history and, and, get it there so concisely and it just makes you even more curious like you feel satisfied and then fully curious and you just want to know more and then you're furious you're furious and then you think what yeah i um why didn't i know more about this and i have my own sort of indigenous history but from like latin america and so to see the depth and the variety and just the like the way it's really a, a powerful book and it should be required reading for all, I don't know, high school seniors. And it just seems like a text that absolutely everyone should read in this country. And uh, and I hope to to read it again soon and, and regularly because there's just a lot there to to refer to. I feel like a more knowledgeable human of, of where I live, you know, where I'm from. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yep. All right. Um, so tell us. Who yes. you would like to see as a guest on Books Are Pop Culture. But if you are connected with this person, then you must disclose your connection so we can be connected as well. 
Hmm. I think Clavis has already been on, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, let me see. I like how he consults his bookshelf. Like yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's what the answers are. We don't have enough space in our heads to keep all of the answers that we get know. from reading so much. And right. so that's what the bookshelf is. It's like another compartment of our brain. And I know you've already been with Robert, right? Robert Jones, mm -hmm. Jr.? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think I, I watched we, that episode, so I don't know what I'm asking. I, I'll say this, though. Yeah. Robert was Instagram Live Books of Pop Culture. Mm, and, yeah. and he has yet to appear on, like, podcast slash YouTube Books of Pop Culture. So that's like a 0. 0.5 mm -hmm. answer. Okay, I have these two that come to mind. Alexander Chi. Mm, yeah, that's a how to write okay. one of either this uh, nonfiction or one of his two novels, Edinburgh or Queen of the Night. And then uh, Melissa Losada Oliva, Dreaming of You. It's a novel in verse. Nice. It's sort of uh, it's a bit of a ghost story about Selena, so you know the famous pop singer. Um, mm. she's a wonderful writer and poet and performer, very cool and a singer. Uh, and I, she joined me on a road trip from Boston to South Hadley, uh, where I had to read in a bookstore and she was my conversation partner and, uh, we text every so often. She's also at the same publisher and she has another book coming out shortly. She is a, a, a wonderful, you know, kind of person. And I think would make a good guest. And then Alex. Um, and yeah, so that's how I know her. And Alex championed my early um, stories. And he's just uh, just one of these people that does things for new writers. He'll connect you. He'll respond to you. He'll give you suggestions. Uh, when he's in town, he'll say, let's go grab it. Let's go grab coffee. Let's." And he's been very kind to me. And uh, and he's a good talker too, yeah. you know. Yeah. And that and that that man has a lot of literary history and knowledge. So, yeah. And uh, we just we just recorded an episode over the weekend that just came. Well, as of this recording, it just came out like a couple of days ago uh, with Swati uh, Swati Sadarson, and she okay. mentioned Alexander Chi. And like oh. this questionnaire that the he three questions, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that he that he wants you that he says if you're gonna write a piece, you should ask yourself these three questions. Yep. And depending yep. on yep. the pattern, you should write it. So, yeah. yep. Um, look, at, look at the universe, universe. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And um, and, and what, have you had Nana on Nana Kwame J Brenya? We that have too. not. Yeah. Okay. We have not yet. We. Okay. Uh, I, so he is, you know, he has a book coming out as well. Yeah. Um, his second, uh, Chain Gang All-Stars. And um, we have become friendly over the last year, but just at book events and stuff. But I, he, he strikes me as a, as a really great person. And I think also a great conversationalist and someone who you could have a good time with. And war, uh, war. so yeah. any of those people I think would be good and, I'm sure you could reach out to them directly, but I'd be happy to connect you if you wanted. Right. Oh, thank righteous. you for that. Thank you for that, Alejandro. And um, yeah, the easiest question of them all, um, and I know we kind of answered it earlier, but you know, 
where can people go to follow your journey? Like, you know, social media, website, all that. But also, you know, what should we be looking out for next from Alejandro Varela? So I am at Dro Varela, D-R-O, the last three letters of my first name, Alejandro. Dro Varela, V-A-R-E-L-A. And that's my handle for Twitter and Instagram. I don't do TikTok because maybe I'm too old. I don't, I'm self-conscious. And, uh, and then I try to post what events I'm going to do on those two places whenever I have anything coming up. And I will be in Tucson, in LA, in, in Oxford, Mississippi, in San Antonio, Texas, in um, North Dakota for festivals and conferences through the spring. And this is the upcoming book, April 4th, The People Who Report More Stress, 13 stories uh, that I'm very proud of. If this if this book is about not being able to go home or about the complications of going back to where you came from, this is about the complications of landing. I'm a class jumper. And so I write about class jumpers and you, you do the things you're told to do. And sometimes you land places and you're like, but I don't recognize anything or anyone. And so you end up having those sidewalk moments and those sidewalk moments to me are indicative of like lots of other moments. So this is, this is really about like when you move up the ladder and you don't feel like you where you are is where you really belong. But then whenever you go home, you don't belong there either because you left. Hmm. And what do you what do you talk about? So, I mean, I'm exaggerating because I'm I have a good life in both these places and my narrators do, too. But I explore the stuff that doesn't work. Yeah. And uh, and my hope is to continue that trajectory. So every book I write after this is about that American experience. Like what happens when the narrative you've been fed all your life is incomplete and maybe even just fully wrong. And so my narrator over the course of the next five or six books is going to learn about that and maybe become more and more radical and maybe do something to turn it around. So that's my, that's my hope. So I sold these two books. I just sold the next two. I just finished oh. writing a book last a uh, few days ago. It's a short, a much shorter novel. It's a bit experimental. It's a bunch of emails it's an epistolary, epistolary novel, as they say. And, uh, and, uh, but still exploring a lot of the same things with a little bit of a different voice. And I have this secret dream to publish. Don't tell anyone, okay? I have this secret dream to publish the, the six or seven books that I have in my head, um, one a year uh, for the next, so the next five years. And then after that, if I don't have any more ideas, I'll take some acting classes, which is what I always wanted to do. Hey, hey, hey. All right. Let's go. Let's go. Yes, hey, yes. Seven-time seven author and actor, Alejandro Varela. <laughs> it sounds that's how we're gonna like have to, a plan. That's how we're going to have to introduce you. Okay. Yes, yes. No, yes, yes. After you write those seven, I'll finally be done with my one. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. And when he's done with his one, I'll have like one sentence uh -huh. done, yep, yep. done mm -hmm. in my book. And it will say, it all started. It on all Wednesday. started. It all started on a Wednesday. That's going to be it'll be favorite. that. Then it'll be my, my turn to interview you two. Yes. 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 So. Y'all, make sure you get your copy of The Town of Babylon and the people who report more stress from the Books of Pop Culture Bookshop, which can be found at www.bookshop.org slash shop slash Books of Pop Culture. Alejandro, thank you again. This has been a complete pleasure. Um, thank you. you know, thank, thank you both. 
Jin Achille. Yes, thank you as well, Achille. And uh, for Alejandro Varela, for Achille Nasiri, I'm Reggie Bailey. This has been another edition of Books of Pop Culture, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Peace.